Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, brought to you by Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, the broadcast about timely and important legal issues affecting the insurance industry. I'm John Zuba, editor of Best's Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Joining me is Brendan Noonan from our communications team. We're pleased to have with us today attorney Michael McDonough from the law firm of O'Brien, Brown, and Toner in Louisville, Kentucky. Michael is an experienced trial attorney specializing in civil litigation and is a member of DRI. Mike, we're pleased you could join us today. I'm uh, glad to be here. Our topic today centers on a dispute between Associated Industries of Kentucky and United States Liability Insurance Group regarding self-insurance mat- uh, fund matters. Brendan Noonan leads off today with our first question. Uh, Mike, uh, what was at the center of this dispute? Well, I guess to give you a little bit of background, Associated Industries of Kentucky is a Kentucky nonprofit corporation. Uh, it was operated as a manufacturing trade association. And the association offered a variety of services to its manufacturing members, lobbying services, labor relations, things of that nature. In addition, it offered its members sort of an exclusive right to participate in AIK Comp. AIK Comp was a workers' compensation self-insured insurance fund. And within the context of that membership, each, I guess, manufacturer or company is paying in a certain premium annually in order to have all of its costs covered for the relevant time period. In this particular case, the unfortunate reality was that, or at least the allegation has been, is that AIK Comp was not setting appropriate reserves and was misrepresenting its reserves and under, I guess, charging its members in order to increase its membership. In any event, as a result, ultimately, AIK Comp had a shortfall of approximately $53 million. I guess that was in 1998. Uh, By late 99, the estimate was closer to $90 million. Because each member of the fund is joint and severally liable for each of the other members' losses, it essentially put all the companies on the line for $90 million, which they ultimately did have to pay out of their own pockets. Where we became involved in this case is that there were all of the companies uh, which were members of AIK who had suffered the loss ultimately filed suit against AIK and AIK's board members and other executives in an attempt to recover their loss. Their theory was simply that AIK's reserving practices had caused this loss. We represented United States Liability Company, who had written a professional liability policy for AIK. AIK, of course, claimed that that policy should provide them with both the defense to the underlying lawsuits filed by former members of AIK Comp and, of course, indemnify them for any loss that they ultimately suffered. Uh, There were over 2,500 members of AIK Comp, so there were at least four underlying class action lawsuits against AIK. Uh, Needless to say, this would have been extensive litigation that U.S. liability would have had to defend and, and ultimately indemnify. Uh, U.S. liability took the position that a specific exclusion within the contract precluded coverage. In this case, there was a policy exclusion that basically said, and I won't read it verbatim, that no losses would be covered if the claim made against the insured had arisen out of the offering or administration of any insurance plan or program. The United States liability took the position that a group self-insurance fund is insurance, for the purpose of the insurance exclusion. AIK took the position that it was not insurance because it was not specifically regulated under the Kentucky Insurance Code and that they tried to draw certain distinctions between the two. Can you explain the difference between a self-insurance fund and a typical insurer? Sure. 
In traditional insurance, a third party assumes the risks of certain negative events or consequences in return for a premium, something that's going to be paid to them. A traditional insurance company will invest that premium and seek to make a profit from it while allocating enough reserves to pay any potential or likely losses. In a self-insurance fund, various individual entities, in this in this case, manufacturers, will bind themselves jointly and severally to be liable for each other's workers' compensation risks. It works much like a traditional insurance company, only in theory you're, you're cutting out the middleman. You're pooling your own funds, investing your own funds, and you're eliminating the profit that would normally be paid to the insurance company. Uh, Mike, what would be some of the advantages for a company to want to become a self-insured entity? Well, again, the, the idea is to decrease the cost of premiums by eliminating the profit element that a third-party insurer would typically include in the cost of any premium. At the same time, in theory, a self-insurance fund minimizes risk compared to if you insured yourself alone, because you're always going to be able in a fund if you have enough members to spread the risk around. Uh, In this case, AIK Comp, again, had approximately 2,500 members, so the chance of having dramatic losses by numerous members was relatively low and they could share in the risk. Of course, the problem comes in that the fund has to be appropriately managed as any other insurance fund and reserves have to be maintained to cover risks. As discussed earlier, the problem in this case is that insufficient amounts of reserve were set aside by AIK Comp and they ultimately suffered a substantial shortfall, which left each company on the hook for, I guess, about $90 million time was all said and done. Uh, now, this decision and ruling is based on Kentucky law. Uh, does this have relevance to other states? Well, it could. I, I think it could have a lot of persuasive value to the extent that this issue is ever litigated in other states. Ultimately, this was a federal court trying to interpret and anticipate where Kentucky would go in terms of its insurance law. In this case, in particular, it was really just a question of interpreting the specific terms of the insurance contract. Kentucky case law on this issue has been fairly straightforward in that it's whenever there is a policy of or a term in an insurance policy, the court tries to give it an it's just plain, everyday, common person's meaning. And of course, uh, that approach might be different in different states. In our case, we emphasize that once the system as AIK Comp worked was described to any average person on, off the street, an average person would consider it to be the offering of insurance. And to that effect, AIK Comp had advertised their program as, uh, quote, insurance and had told potential customers to or new members to contact their, quote, insurance agent to learn more. So it really just became a focus on applying Kentucky state contract law to the terms of this contract. Now, there may be similarities between Kentucky contract law and other states that would be beneficial, I guess, to litigants in other states should this issue arise. The other thing that was unique about our case is that it dealt somewhat with specific application of the Kentucky Insurance Code. There are at least three other major cases on this topic that were briefed uh, where courts have been faced with a similar question. Uh, They were out of Iowa, South Carolina, and Maryland. Uh, South Carolina and Maryland came down much as Kentucky and essentially said, wherever there's a, a sharing or allocation of risk, then you have insurance. Iowa relied on a very technical interpretation of its specific insurance statute and came to the opposite conclusion. So I guess for other states in terms of litigation, yes, this case might have some persuasive value depending on the unique set of facts to their case.
I think it's real important is to any companies or individuals who are engaged in the purchase or selling of professional liability insurance. Anyone who is engaged in uh, a self-insurance fund should very closely look at their insurance policy and make sure that there is coverage. And on the other hand, those who are writing these type of policies would be well served to have a very specific exclusion for self-insurance funds so that they're not incurring the cost of litigating this issue in the future. Mike, is it possible the Supreme Court could eventually get involved in this matter? In this case, I I would say no. Uh, One, based on representations that have been made to me by opposing counsel, it's unlikely they're going to pursue this any further. But two, this is really just, it's an issue of interpreting state law, at least in in our case. And I think almost in any case, this is going to become a question of how to interpret the specific contracted issue, which is going to almost invariably send the litigants looking toward their respective states' common law with respect to how to interpret a contract. I don't think the Supreme Court would ever accept you know, certiorari of a case under those circumstances because I don't think the Supreme Court would be in the position to try to interpret or unify or have jurisdiction to, to unify the 50 different states' law with respect to interpretation of contracts. Okay, Mike, thanks very much, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks a lot. Uh, that was Michael McDonough from the law firm of O'Brien, Brown & Toner in Louisville, Kentucky. Special thanks today to Brendan Noonan from our communications team and to our producer, Brian Cohen. And thank you all for joining us for the Insurance Law Podcast. To subscribe to this audio program, visit podcast.insuranceattorneysearch.com or go to online directories such as iTunes or Google or Yahoo's podcast directory. And if you have any suggestions for a future topic regarding an insurance law case or issue, please email us at lawpodcast.ambest.com. I'm John Zuba, joined by Brendan Noonan, and now this message. Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is used by decision makers at insurance companies responsible for selecting legal counsel and representation. The printed directory is distributed annually to insurance companies, non-insurance companies, third-party administrators, and corporate counsel around the world, and the online edition is accessible throughout the year. Your listing in Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is the most effective way to ensure that thousands of potential clients have access to your outstanding credentials. Here's why you should be listed in the number one insurance insurance attorney reference. Your firm's credentials will be listed in our comprehensive reference guide, which is made available to thousands of insurance professionals globally, both in print and online. AMBEST listees are recognized as the most qualified in their field to represent the unique needs of insurance companies. Key decision makers rely on the directory to take the guesswork out of their selection process. They know that only the best are listed, those firms with a proven track record of excellence who are recommended by their insurance industry clients. And remember, one low rate guarantees year long visibility for your firm. We invite you to use our web application process to apply for a listing today. With our reasonable rates and broad exposure, there's no more effective way to get the attention of the insurance industry. For more information about BEST's directory of recommended insurance attorneys, visit www.insuranceattorneysearch.com. 